I have been bouncing around the Southeast lately, traveling, getting paid to do it, uh, recording interviews in Charleston last weekend. Uh, this weekend, I'm going to Nashville to a wedding, and then in the end of the month, going down to my hometown, Albany, Georgia, for a memorial service. But carrying my trusty recorder all the way, today's recording comes right here near home in Mooresville, North Carolina, Race City, USA. We talk a little bit about racing. And of course, Indianapolis would have a little problem with Mooresville call, calling itself Race City. You'll hear a little bit about that with uh, today's guest, which I recorded right there on her couch in Mooresville, North Carolina. It does cost money for us to travel around and produce this podcast. If you'd like to help, go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com. And kick in a little bit. Just look for man listening. One word. Thanks so much. You need all the tools that you can to write your story, right? And what you tell yourself. I mean, that is not, you know, I know we're in the age of the self-help and the life coaches and the things. But what you tell yourself is huge to what happens to you in your life, right? And how you see things. What is the sound of one man listening? This is Man Listening, a fresh podcast featuring the stories of strong women who bounce back. Man Listening, because every woman deserves to be heard. Hi there, I'm Stuart Watson and welcome to Man Listening. Today, my friend Allison Andrews, who at Andrews Creative helped to create the concept of this podcast when she said, Stuart, we are not talking about this anymore until you actually produce the podcast put it on the air. So she lit a fire under me as she did for many years in television news as my executive producer. Um, you'll hear her talk about her humble origins getting into that, which is a really fun story. My friend, Allison Andrews. Where were you born? Charleston, South Carolina. I did not know that. I thought you were from Indiana. I grew up in Indiana. My dad was in the Navy. Okay. So we actually moved around quite a bit when I was a kid, probably 10 times before I was in the third grade. For your mother, you're number what of how many? I am the oldest of six. You're the boss. Yeah. And the next one came how far? Down? Three years. Um, and those six were over the course of how many years? Uh, my youngest sister, so there's five girls and a boy. And my youngest sister is 13 years younger than me. So half a generation. Yeah, I mean, there was there were literally periods of years that my mom was just always pregnant. <laughs> For purposes of understanding you, what should I know about your mom? That would understand me. My mom is very no bullshit. My mom grew up um, Southern Indiana on a farm. Her father. Or, well, both of her parents were German. So my papal was a hardworking farmer, no excuses, loved a cold beer kind of a person. And my mom is very much, my mom calls it like she sees it. She doesn't sugarcoat stuff. Um, and I don't mean that in a, in a bad way. She's really one of the most loving people I know. But she is very, the way she is, a family is everything. Those are probably the two things 
most from my mom. Now, were there some things that you would let the siblings get away with that she would not let them get away with? Well, th that's really a funny one because I, in my brain, I am a rule follower and people who know me think that's the most ridiculous thing ever. Like, they're like, you're not a rule follower. And I'm like, well, yes, I am. And like, I've gotten in arguments with people. Like, my sister's like, do you actually, like, you really think that you're a rule follower? I said, well, I am. She goes, well, you're not a lawbreaker. Like, if that's what you're talking about, like, you're not like, you know, you're not doing illegal things. She's like, but you are absolutely not a rule follower. She's like, a rules to you are just like, they're guidelines. They probably thought I was a bigger pain in the butt than mom. Like when my brother moved out to California, he was just out of high school and he needed a place to live. And I said, okay, but I'm not mom. I'm not worrying about your butt all night or what you're doing. So you have to follow, you have to like, let me know. This is not free for all coming Oh, go. so he moved in with you. He moved in, yeah. And I think he thought it was gonna be like, oh, free for all. And I was like, mm, no. I'm not your mom and I can't, I don't have time to be worrying about all that nonsense. So, you know, uh, and my sister came to visit one time when I was, she was in high school and I was in college. And I think her and her friends were like, we're gonna go hang out with Allison. And they ended up getting busted at a party. And I got called, I had to leave another party to go down to jail to get them. And they, they, it's the big joke now. They're like, you were so irritated with us. We thought you were going to be cool about it and you were totally a pain in the butt. So. Well, you could have left them in jail. Right, exactly. You didn't have to go. I didn't have to them. go get them. I was having a pretty good time at the party I got called out of. Yeah. <laughs> you, could have, you could have been real no codependency and great. <laughs> If you want to see irritation, no, I'm not irritated at all because I'm not going down there. I'm not there. going down there. <laughs> I'm going to keep having fun. When you were a little girl, like two years old, your mother would have described you how? My mom said when I was little, I ran the neighborhood. You were the organizer? You I was were like... always the organizer. We, we organized shows, organized all the things. Um, my dad jokes, my dad was in the service. So when I was little, he'd be gone for long periods of time. And I think it was about two or three that, uh, my mom and I went Christmas shopping and my dad said that mom decided to let me just decide what was on the decorations for the thing. And my dad said, ever since then, she thinks she gets a say in everything. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they would say I was the, I was always a, the organizer. You almost said bossy. Yes. Yeah, bossy. Yeah, but I mean, the kids went along with it. Right. They were like, they could have had a revolt and said, no, we're not doing things your way. Yeah, I wasn't a bully. I was just a bossy. And they, they like must have at gotta, least... Somebody's yeah. got to step up. Yeah. And so were you like theatrical? Did you guys do productions or something or Dude, did I you... was selling tickets selling tickets to the show yeah we would sell like tickets there would be acts there would be plays yeah it was pretty theatrical music oh probably I'm sure it was horrible in high school you would be known as what like what group what little group were you in 
I don't know. I mean, I was probably considered a popular kid, but I kind of hung out in different groups. Like I was involved in the theater. So with all those people, I was class president. So I could hang with that kind of academia people. And I was a cheerleader. So I knew that group. So I went to a very, very small high school, very small. It was across from a pig farm in Indiana. Like it just, it was not, I think there were probably 150 people in my class. You know, you knew everybody and we were just all kind of country kids. But I, I mean, I would have been, I would have been considered in the popular, one of the popular kids. Were you aware of yourself as, oh my God, we are so behind the times. We are so, this is such a Hicksville. I've got, I can't wait to get out of this place. Or were you like, damn right, country and proud. I really, lo I mean, I really loved growing up in a small town. I loved it. I also knew I didn't want to stay there. So I don't know if I really gave much thought to thinking we're behind or we're, it's boring until like maybe in, later in high school where I was like, I'm not going to stay here. Like this isn't what I want, but absolutely loved growing up, running around barefoot, pickup trucks. Um, I used to drive with my, I had a, I had an AMC Hornet, 1972 AMC Hornet. It had no air conditioner. And I would put my foot up on the dash out the window and drive. And I'd hit the back roads and it would go And I would lose a muffler. And my dad was like, if you lose one more muffler on that car. Like I loved, I loved the way that I grew up. I loved that it was a small town and, and people sat on their front porches. Um, but I also knew I didn't want to stay there. That was not, I was not going to be the person who never left. Did you say to yourself, we're poor or we're, how come we don't have nice things or anything? Or were you aware of like sort of where you were in the pecking order or were you not aware? In terms of my family? Um, like when you go to school or when you turn on the TV? I don't know. I, in part, I don't, I think kids today, man, I, I see some of these kids that go to school with my daughter who have way more money than anybody I went to school with. Um, we had six kids. So in a big family, like, I don't know, hand-me-downs and, and like that kind of stuff is, we, ne we never took a lot of vacations because we didn't have a lot of money for that. We had big imaginations. My first kitchen as a kid was a cardboard box that my mom had put car, um, what's that, contact paper and put knobs on it. You know, my daughter's first kitchen was like this thing that looked like a designer kitchen. It was plastic and like awesome. And, but I, I didn't know any different then. So I, I guess there were probably moments that I knew we didn't have a lot of money because we didn't do big vacations and we didn't do stuff like that because there were so many of us. It, it never kept me from, mom always said, we can always get you what you need. You can't always have what you want. And so, I, you know, I never, I always had what I needed. It seems to me that it's never easy to go through adolescence. It's always a challenge. But now it seems like there's all these layers and layers of things added on to it, that yeah. it's just it's anxiety producing. Oh, I, totally. What is it that has been added on 
to the already anxious time for your daughter's generation? And how do you, as a really good mom, you're a really good mom, really dialed into her from the smallest time, how do you mitigate that? Well, I mean, this is probably a little bit of a cliche answer, but I, I definitely think social media is an aspect that wasn't before. There's a country song right now called Breaking Up Was Easier in the 90s. And it's about this guy who, like, he's tired of looking at his ex-girlfriend on the phones and the feeds and knowing where she is and all that kind of stuff. And I, that song cracks me up because I think that's absolutely true. When I was growing up, you didn't know if you got invited to a party or not. You just didn't, like, there was no record of it, right? You could do things um, and make dumb mistakes and there wasn't video that was going to be circulated and get you in trouble. Um, I didn't have to worry about a job that was going to scrutinize a, a photo of me in college with a beer in my hand, right? So I definitely think those things um, have made it m much more of an environment um, that is anxiety producing for kids. I also think that those things aren't going away. My job is to not shelter her from them, but to show her how to live with them and to put boundaries on it. So I'm not one who said you can never get, although I still won't let her get Twitter because she doesn't spell good enough in my opinion. And as a writer, I cannot let that many misspelled words go out into the world. She could be president, Allison. <laughs> <laughs> like, she's like, mom, you won't let me get Twitter? I'm like, no. But I do think that like part of that is, is helping them, you know, learn how to use that the right way and to, to keep it in the right perspective. And that's become a bigger part of parenting, I think, than, than, than some of the other things. When you left home, where did you go? Co college. Where? Ball State. David, Why? David Letterman's alma mater. Uh, because actually he had just built a brand new communication school. One, I had to go in state, like out of state wasn't an option for me financially. And so Ball State, David Letterman had just built a ginormous communication compound that was brand new the year I started. And the only kids who could get, <laughs> this is so awesome, the only kids who could get scholarships were C students because that's what David Letterman was when he went there. People worry way too much about right now. People are worried about the, and it is, and I do think you have to be competitive, I guess, and maybe because I've just, I don't know, maybe because I know my daughter and what she's capable of. She's not a huge fan of school. Like I loved school when I was growing up. She doesn't really like school. Um, I, I, I don't overly stress about it. That's kind of what I think. I'm like, like nobody's ever asked me my GPA outside of getting into college. No one. It has never been a criteria for whether or not I got a job, right? Your work ethic's more important. Can you think, can you do this? Are you creative? Like all of that, sure. And I'm not saying you should like flunk out. I'm not saying that either. But like if she has B's and C's and a couple of A's, like I can live with that. Like I'm like, oh, she'll be fine. Yeah, it's almost like went to Juilliard. That's great. Let me hear you. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Let me hear you. 
Well, and even, even you know, I, there used to be so much more pressure put on where you went to school. Like it used to be a bigger deal, like for us as journalists, right? That you, you came out of Mizzou, right? That used to be a bigger deal. I don't think anybody cares anymore. Yeah, what did um, you want to study? Communications. Why? I have always wanted to, to do this before Dateline became, me and my daughter call it now, who gets killed Fridays because that's all they do. But, you know, back when Dateline was really a news magazine, like I, I watched it all the time and I thought that I wanted to tell stories and I want to do this. We lived on a farm and it would, my job was to mow the yard and mowing our yard was a two hour process. It was on a big tractor, not a push mower. You sat on the riding tractor and it took like two hours maybe an hour and a half. I used to drive around on the tractor and I would interview myself. I would have a show. I would host a show. And you were talking to yourself. Allison. Talking to myself. This not, yeah. This was all imaginary. <laughs> yeah, I know. But that's what I'm saying. Like I've always wanted. But I bet wanted, they were great. <laughs> they were excellent shows. If only podcasting was a thing back then, Stuart. <laughs> um, I would have been on the cutting edge. Um, but so I've always wanted to do that. I used to have competitions with my, my siblings. Like, remember when people had newspapers? We used to get the newspaper. And I, we, I would say, okay, we're, you have to read this, these three paragraphs of this story like you're a newscaster. And we would pick who read it the best. I've wanted to do journalism and storytelling and stuff for, I don't remember ever wanting to do anything else. A lot of people, you know, they say you change what you want to do many, many times. I, I didn't really. I met some of the people who to this day, I consider some of the most creative people that I know. A, a bunch of the guys that I kind of hung out with in college that became we were kind of the, the communication, you know, posse where we, we did all the, we did the radio shows and we did the school TV programs and all that kind of stuff. They all now, they, they're, most of them became editors, um, have their own production companies in LA or work for HBO or do, you know, a lot of stuff like that. My experience there was just, it was really awesome and really where I learned to just kind of go off script and really figure out, stop mimicking the people I had been watching on Dateline, right? And stop mimicking the stories that I was reading and figure out how, what is my style and how do I push myself creatively? So I, I loved it there. Yeah. I, the, well, the guys next door, they would call my, me and my roommates at like, it'd be like midnight and they'd be like, okay, we need you guys to come over. We're shooting a scene. I'd be like, what do you mean you're shooting a scene? Yeah, we're, we're making a film. We need you to come over. And we, and you know, you're in college, you're like, uh, okay, we'll be over in a minute. And this is like at midnight, right? They were film guys. And, and so it was that kind of a, you know, experience for me. And they weren't being skeevy. No, they weren't. Like there was no, yeah, no, there was no questionable Notice where scenes. My, my mind goes. No, no, no. There was no questionable scenes. It was literally like, you know, or, Hey, come over. We need you to be a, a gaffer and hold this light for us. Or we need you to. You know, it was that kind of stuff. It's so all, let's put on a show in the barn kind of stuff. Yeah. 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 Okay. First time you got paid to do what you really loved. First time I got paid. Well, so my first job was actually a summer job. It was actually in radio. And the radio station It was a radio was? station, WWKI in Kokomo, Indiana. It was a country station. And your job was? Uh, to read the news. 
What um, time of the day? And cover the city council meetings. What time of the day? Um, I didn't have a terrible shift. It was like, it was like a, I, I either would do like the into the night shift, like till 10, right? Like the afternoon, like if I had to cover a city council meeting, you would go in at two, I'd get all the news, do all the news for the five and six, and then I'd go to the city council meeting and then I'd come back and write a story about it. Anyway. When you had your reel and heard your voice, did you think what? <laughs> probably thought it was awesome. <laughs> I probably thought like, oh, I am doing it now, man. New York. Yeah. Here I come. I remember going, I, I was live one time on the radio at the county fair and some friends, there was, a, there's a, I don't know, somewhere a tape exists. And I said something like, you know, I was really super young and you're, you're kind of going off the cuff. And you know how a fair, there's like noises everywhere, right? And they said, okay, we want you to go through uh, one of the fun houses or something. I was supposed to go live and something. And I at some point said something like, there's plenty of buzzers here or something like that. And like my friends who heard it later, they're like, wow, that was astute <laughs> reporting. Plenty of buzzers here. And I'm like, I don't know. I was going through a stupid fun house. Were you on a cell phone? Yeah. The, the I'm like a thousand ones. years old. There were no cell phones. Oh yeah, it was the, one of the big ones, the, the bag ones, one of the big bag cell phones. Not like you could put it in your pocket. Like they issued you a cell phone. Yeah, and it was like, it was as big as a regular phone. Like it a just, toaster. It, yeah, and it had like an antenna on it. I remember back, do you remember that show, uh, what was that movie? Um, with Michelle Pfeiffer. But remember she was covering a jailbreak and they went into the prison and they just started going live. And back then I was like, that can't happen. There's no cables. Like, what are they doing? Just put up their backpack and they're going live. Like, that's not even real. And now today, you know. There's a backpack. There's a backpack. There is no cables that you have to string anymore. Right. God, that makes me sound old. Yes. First real job after Ball State. Fort Myers, Florida. So it's a fun market. It's a fun market, but they also pay you in sunshine. Oh, sure. Um, and it's I remember, a paid internship is what it is. <laughs> yeah. I remember doing a um, story. Uh, back then, you used to do the story about they would report, like the report would come out on what the poverty level is. Mm -hmm. And I remember running teleprompter. I was running tele teleprompter in the newsroom or in the control room. And I was like, huh. That's my salary. <laughs> Great. I'm at poverty level. Excellent. They can interview me. Yeah. Yeah. So that was my first job. And how and long? Probably about a year or so. Um, probably about a year or so. But it's where I really started. I had always thought I wanted to be a reporter because I thought that's where you had to tell stories. And it's where I shifted and really decided I wanted to become a producer um, and where I kind of learned my kind of producing chops. There was a producer there who did the 11 and they weren't letting me produce. I was on the assignment desk. I was a part-time video editor. I'd run like, and then I would do like run the teleprompter and stuff and they wouldn't let me. They're like, no, no, no. She like, cause I had asked and they wouldn't let me produce and they didn't have an opening and da, da, da. And she said, she was doing the weekends and she said, okay, you come on the weekends and I'll show you how to produce. So. I would go and and watch her and then yeah 
And what clicked? Like, why did you want to do that? Because producers had more control than reporters. <laughs> sure. They did. Producers, I was like, You could oh, boss people around. I could boss people around. That, that's in my wheelhouse. One, I didn't have to get dressed up every day <laughs> like reporters had to. And two, I really had more control over how stories were told because I was either editing the scripts or determining the stories. Um, and so I liked, I liked that aspect of it. Yeah. And in Florida, it also meant I didn't have to go out in the 95 bajillion degree heat every day. But that's where I, I really liked, I liked all the multitasking involved in producing because you kind of knew a little about everything instead of going and spending my whole day on one thing. Tell me a story about a newscast at whatever age in which, oh my God, <laughs> it, it just augured it into the ground. It went to hell. Um, gosh. Well, you know, one of the first, one of the, cr the craziest times in the control room that, that come to mind is uh, during a hurricane because, or severe weather, because you were always losing live shots. Like, and so you would go to, you would try to go somewhere. So as a producer, you know this, but you have to hit certain times, right? To get meters, to get points ratings. for the ratings for the viewerships, you have to hit a certain time. So you couldn't just like willy nilly go to commercial break whenever you wanted to, you had to have. So those to me, even though they always exploded because live shots dropped, you had to switch, you know, stuff, people couldn't get in in time or get to where they were going in time. Those to me were the most fun because it was just like, you just throw everything up and you grab what you grab and you got to keep it going so you don't go to black and everybody knows what's happening. Like those to me are when I was the most charged up. Now the worst where it was like a bad way was we were launching a new newscast and you know, you practice for a new newscast, you, you have new sets built and everybody knows like, here's where the, the shots are going to be. And it was just for many reasons, a complete disaster, like complete disaster. Like it's one of the few times I've ever really been yelled at because I've always been pretty good at my job. And I was, and I was like, I don't even know what happened. Like if you ask me what happened, I don't even know. It was the most shell shocked I've ever been in my life. Like I might as well just be sitting there like, what the heck just happened? It was really, and that's really been the only one that's been a complete debacle. Yeah. And it's like nothing is quite as fun as seeing someone melt down live. <laughs> and you're like, there's this schadenfreude. It's, like, it's more like, thank God I'm not there. Thank God well, I'm not there. If you would have had a camera on the control room, you would have seen the meltdown because I was just like, I don't know. I've lost control of the room. I have no idea. Because when you said county fair, I flashed to the <laughs> in 1988 at um, the Wilson County Fair in Tennessee is only like 45 minutes from Nashville, but it's over some hills, uh -huh. like a little like range. Yeah. And so they decided to do a satellite shot 
and I had never done a satellite shot. And so there was no mixed minus lit. And so I had the echo. Well, anybody with a brain knows <laughs> that you just pull your earpiece out. It's like trying to sing the Star Spangled Banner and you're constantly hearing your own voice and nothing is more disconcerting. All right. And so instead I kept the earpiece in and to everyone at home, all 12 viewers, it looked like I'd had a stroke. Because you were talking so slow. I was, <laughs> I was stuttering. And it looked like I was having a stroke on the air. So much so that an old lady called up and said, is that boy going to be sick? <laughs> and I knew exactly how bad it was because there was like these risers at the county fair behind me. And um, there was a presidential candidate there, Mike Dukakis. And so that's like why we were there. Oh, okay. It wasn't just the fun house. And um, <laughs> so I finished the live shot and I'm just like, oh my God, oh my God. And the man behind me, he goes, it's okay, son. It wasn't that bad. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how bad you're it was. Like, you're that's like, well, now terrible. I know it was that now bad. That's how terrible it was. <laughs> so all your feelings, imagine if you were like, <laughs> Out there. there, I know. Yeah, that's and see, I mean, the good choice to be behind the camera. Yes. Yeah. So, but I mean, at a certain point, you were in San Francisco, right? Yeah. Like, how did you go from Kokomo? To, <laughs> that's that's kind of a big hop. It from, was a big hop. I went to from Florida, from Fort Myers to, to San Francisco, and the NBC affiliate there was starting a new cable channel. But I mean, how, how were you able to make that big of a jump? Um, I don't know, by the grace of God? I don't, I mean, I've always been like lucky landing on my feet. Like they, they were starting the new cable. I think it's because they needed people. They were starting the new 24 hour news, uh, local news thing. It was run in the same building with, um, the, then was the NBC affiliate, K-R-O-N. And um, the timing was right. And they offered me a, to produce the 8 o'clock. I think I started on the 8 o'clock before I went to the morning. I think I started on like some random like 8 o'clock show or something. I lied about my age because I was like, they are not going to hire this young kid. I mean, I was probably 23. I was like, there, there's no way. So I said I was 20 six or 27 I think I said I was 26 and um, I lied so much that that the first year that I went to my a friend of mine from college got married and we were at her bachelorette party and they asked for IDs and they said how old are you let's see your ID and I gave them my ID which was real and I was legal but I said my lying age and they looked at me and I was like oh I just lie at work. No, this is really my license. Like I'm really this age. And like, and they, so, um, and then by the time I probably worked there for a, a year and a half or two before I fessed up that I wasn't as old um, and felt bad about lying. But and I figured by then, their reaction was, um, they were like, "You're a dork. Why'd you lie about it?" And I was like, "Cause I don't think you guys would have. I would have had no." And they said, "Well, it's easy to say. Like, yes, we would have, but." You know, I had proved myself by then. Out. Yeah, they, they, yeah, exactly. So it's easy to say, oh, we wouldn't have. Yeah, you would have. And because I mean, I was back in San Francisco. I mean, I was directing people way older than me. Did you live in the city? 
I lived in Marin County over the bridge. I loved every day I would drive over the Golden Gate Bridge into, into the city. Oh my God. Yeah. And what was it like culturally to go from the high school across from the pig farm <laughs> to San Francisco, city of sin? Yeah. I, I really loved it. It was finally, I'd always wanted to, to go to different places and Fort Myers was good, but it's, you know, it's old people and tourists kind of. No offense to anybody who lives in Fort Myers. I had some very good years there, but it's not a cultural mecca. And suddenly, you know, and I was in, so I was in my early twenties. Um, and I loved all the different cultures. I loved all the different foods. I loved the geographically, how beautiful that area is. And that was before it became, I mean, it was expensive then, but it was before it became like outrageous like it is now and before it became, you know, I, I thought it was awesome. My bigger cultural shock was moving from San Francisco to North Carolina because I was like, oh, I'm going to have to fight a hillbilly now and some redneck's going to make me mad. It was a bigger cultural shock, shock for then because I had lived in San Francisco for five years with, you know, I love walking down the street and hearing different languages and I love all of that. Your ex worked in NASCAR. Were you always a NASCAR fan? No, I grew up in Indiana, so I was an Indy 500 fan. I was an IndyCar fan. So, um, what did you come to appreciate about NASCAR? Yeah, I mean, I was at, you know, he was crew chief for Dale Earnhardt when he died, so I was at that funeral, and um, it was one of the first times I was on the other side of the cameras, right, all the, the media coverage and stuff. You know, I guess it's the double-edged sword. I have mad respect for the intensity of the competition, right? That all those people from the guys on the smallest on the teams to the top, I mean, they eat, live, and breathe it. They want to win. They want to win. And I have utmost respect for that. And they put in the hours for it. It's not just like, oh, we'd like to win. It's, it's you know, they work seven days a week and, and, you know, have like two weekends off a year, or at least back then they did. Mama and Jesus, Mother's Day and Easter, that's about the only two times they didn't race. Um, but it's also the double-edged sword is there's a lot of burnout and people, they travel so much. I'm all over the place, but <laughs> what's the difference between... Um, the faith, the Roman Catholic faith you grew up in and where you are now? Like, what's the difference in, like, do you still go to Mass? Well, I say yes, although I stopped in the pandemic, but um, for obvious reasons. You know, faith was a huge part of my upbringing. Um, My parents still go to church every day practically. And I grew up in a very traditional Catholic home. I I think where I'm at now, I still for sure identify with the Catholic faith, but, and that's really at the heart of kind of a lot of who I am. But I also rely on my personal relationship with God that I don't think he's going to, that I think I can have if I support abortion, right? So personally, I can be against it, but I think it should be legal. Not what this conversation is about. I could give you 15 million reasons why, right? And I've had this conversation with my parents. 
Do I think that makes me any less Catholic? No. Okay, so some people could say, you can't cherry pick your faith, right? And that's fine, and, and I totally get why people say that. Um, but I also know my personal relationship with God, and so I, I guess that's where I am, where I, I still identify as Catholic, and if you ask me, that's who I am. But do I think there are not issues? Do I think that there are not, you know, no. I had a friend of my daughter's who was very upset after a Sunday, also Catholic, about something that was, that somebody, the instructor had made a comment that was not LGBTQ friendly and they were super upset by it and super did not want to be part of the Catholic church based on traditional beliefs, right? And I said to her, look, you know what? Here's the thing. God gets it right. It's the people who get it wrong. That's what goes for any religion. It's all your interpretation. So I guess that's kind of, I don't know, I guess that's kind of where I've grown to, I'm okay to live with the differences. I'm okay to cherry pick if that's what you want to call it. I know how important my faith has been through getting through hard times and family and all of that kind of stuff. So I wouldn't change it, but I guess I, I use it now as a supplement to how I've just grown in my own faith. You wrote a piece for the Washington Post yeah. after your divorce about what that meant, how that was caused you to like lean on your yeah. faith more. What, what did happen there? What happened in terms of your faith? Like how did your faith shift during and after the divorce? Oh, well, for me, it was, it was, that article really came about because I didn't want my struggles at the time to impact my daughter's foundation of faith. So I simply had stopped going, not because I was really mad at God about anything or about the divorce or something, but I was just like tired at the end of the day. And I was mentally drained and I was like, didn't want to get up and go on Sunday. And then it became, when you stop going, it became it becomes very easy. Like, I'm a nice person. I don't need to go to church to be a nice person, right? So I could still live a certain way, I, but I, I already had a foundation. I already had certain things. And what I realized is, it was about a year, I, I didn't go to church. And that when I think of how leaning on my faith got me through my own personal divorce, by not going to church, I was not giving my daughter that same faith. I was taking that away that if she needed to pull from that later in her life, it would have been like, well, then mom stopped going to church, right? And so for me, it was about going back to be able to, to make sure that I didn't leave a gap in her own faith journey. To if let her sense. know that this very ancient community could be there for her. For her, right. And so for me, I don't want to go because church back then would make me, like, I would cry. Like, just feeling overwhelmed. Like, not, and I would be like, I don't want people to ask why I'm crying or, you know, I'm divorced and I'm Catholic. Well, they don't really support that unless you get an annulment, right? Which was another thing. I'm like, I'm not going to get an annulment and say that 23 years was not real. Like, you know what I mean? So I was, I was at one point going to write the Pope about that. I was like, 
I'm gonna, that's gonna be the best thing I ever write. Which Pope? It's writing, well, I love, I love the new one, Pope Francis. You know, that was gonna be my big, I was like, that's what I'm gonna write about because it's a crock that as a Catholic, like I did everything I could. It doesn't, two people have to save a marriage. One person can't save a marriage. And so now the only way you tell me I could be a Catholic is if I'm, if, if I annulled it and I say that the last 23 year, like, so anyway, uh, you know, so I just didn't want, and, and it wasn't, that didn't even mean that anybody there would have actually done that, right? This is my brain. This is my issue of feeling like you're being looked at, why, why is she crying, what's happening, you know? But it was that same faith that helped me pick up the pieces and know it's gonna be okay and put things back together. And I thought, okay, I'm leaning on that in my own personal life, but now I'm not allowing my daughter to have the opportunity for that. And so that's really what prompted the article is that really realizing that I didn't want to do that to her. And it sounds like you're trying to give to your daughter by going back. Like you're not, like it's bigger than you. She's suffering too. Right. And she needs something to, to pull from. And there have been moments in my life I had a, um, one of my best friend's sisters died. And they were all in the room with her when she died. And her dad was just not able to make himself be there. And so she said, I need you to sit with my dad. And I sat there with him and it, and he is not a religious man. And it made me so sad because I thought, I don't know how I could personally go through something like that and not think that there is something bigger to not think that there's a purpose or that they're going to go someplace that's good or that, you know what I mean? And so I've often wondered how people with no faith get through those times. I mean, for me, that's a very, you know, and so I just, yeah, I want Sid to be able to do that um, as she gets older and whatever, you know, life's going to throw her. Well, everyone has a story. Even if that story is just, there is no meaning and there's nothingness. Right. That's just that's another a, story. That's another story. Absolutely. And that, and the older I get, the more is the advantage of being an older mom than a younger mom. Cause I, you know, didn't have her till I was 35. But the older I get, the more I understand that whatever you use, that you need all the tools that you can to write your story. Right. And, and what you tell yourself, I mean, that is not, you know, I know we're in the age of the self-help and the life coaches and the things, but what you tell yourself is huge to what happens to you in your life, right? And how you see things. I took one of these transformational workshops, and um, which a lot of people think are just completely <laughs> Oh, I loved it. I adored it. I have lessons that I use to this day. And one of the things they said is, listen, we're all making up stories. Yeah why not make up a story that works for you? Yeah. Like that actually you benefit from. That's exactly right. And I'm a, hu I'm a huge, huge believer in that. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's why, yeah, I want her to write whatever story she writes, but I want her to, to be able to, to lean on her faith or to use that to help her if that's what she you know, chooses.
And so where is she with that now? Oh, she's a teenager. I don't know. <laughs> she goes to church if I say, and, you know. But I keep going back to community, not the theology, but the community, you know. And within the larger church, they're, they're usually like your five to ten absolute three o'clock in the morning friends. Yeah, know? which is funny because mine are not. Your friends are not from the church thing? No. No. Are they? In fact, probably, if I think about some of my, uh, which is actually really kind of funny now that you say that, if I think about some of my friends who would be the like, you know, call them at 3 a.m. and say, I need help burying a body, and they would ask no questions, um, probably half of them aren't even really that religious. How do you think we find those people? I don't know how you find those people. I think it just, like, if you say, how does that happen? So that I could tell somebody, here's how you go find those people, right? I don't think that happens. No, I'm asking more like, and I've asked this a million different ways, God's will, fate, synchronicity, randomness. When the student is ready, the teacher appears. Well, I think those are the people who I am kind of in that camp of people who believes that everybody that you meet is in your life serves a purpose, right? It could be for a season. It could be for years. And that the people who are around really for the years are people that you are constantly learning from, that they are either challenging you in some way or they there's some sort of a, you know, mutually beneficial thing that you're getting from each other. I think those people that stick around are, are, that's who those people are. Those are the ones who, they're not meant to be in our life for a season. And some people are. It doesn't make it wrong. It doesn't mean it wasn't worth anything. It's just, you know, people come and go. Haven't you like worked with somebody that you're like, you loved working with them and then you don't even know why. You just didn't really keep in touch, right? You have no ill feelings for them. If you saw them again, you'd be like, oh my gosh, great to see you, right? Like, but they were just meant to be in your life for a season. Um, I think the people that are there for longer are people that are somehow you're still learning from or they're still helping you grow in some way. Well, and you also kind of know you've only got so much energy in a day and you expend it on you know, positive experiences or people that are worth investing in. There are just some people that you're like, eh, it doesn't mean enough. Well, I'm not your bury the body at 3 a.m. friend. However, <laughs> when I No, need... you would ask me a lot of questions about that. <laughs> <laughs> Before we got the shovel. <laughs> so many questions. You would have so many questions. You're not the person not I'm calling it. at 3 a.m. <laughs> just not worth it. <laughs> Just keep asking questions while you're digging. <laughs> um, but when I needed a place to write my memoir, yeah. you said, here, here's the key to the happy place in the mountains. Here's yeah. the key to my mountain cottage yeah. right off the Blue Ridge Parkway. And I kept that key until you changed the lock. <laughs> Chase the locks. Well, I wasn't um, worried about you becoming a squatter or anything there. So, but I just appreciated that so <laughs> much. I mean, that was just such a kind. That was such an act of kindness. Oh I, well, I good. think Jewish people call it a mitzvah. It was a good deed. It was just a 
good thing. I mean, you're just a giving, that was a giving. I super appreciate that. Well, it was, you know, I mean, I don't know. I guess that's probably also for my parents. If you can help, I, I don't, like, that's just kind of happy to do it. I was, I was fortunate enough to have a place, you know, I don't always have a lot that I can give or do, but if I've got it and I can help, I mean, you know. So that leads me to a question. If you need something, do you ask people around you for what you need? No. I'm, get, I'm trying to get better about it. It's like they say, I saw something and it really stuck with me that said, like, if somebody's going through something you, and you say, let me know if you need anything, right? Somebody died, somebody's going through a divorce, somebody has a new baby, and we all do that. We go, if you need anything, just let me know. And basically, research has shown that's the worst thing to say because most people are not going to say what they need. They're not going to say, yeah, could you make me dinner tomorrow night? They may not know what they need. And they may not know what they need. So I I don't think I'm in the minority in that, but I think um, I do now. Like when I started my own business, I had to ask a lot of questions to people. I had to be like, well, how do you do this? Like, can you give me a template for a contract? Can you, like, how do I do this? I had to ask a lot of questions for what I needed when I started my own business. Had it happened again when I got divorced, I had to lean on people more so probably in the last five years I'm much more likely to ask for what I need like much more Um, but probably before that part of the whole like being in control and always being a pretty independent person and being able to figure stuff out I never I always kind of thought well I don't want to be a burden or I don't want to ask somebody that like I'll, I'll figure it out it's fine you know and, and, and probably didn't, hardly ever would I have said I asked for help. And sometimes it's like a really small thing that you need. Right. It's not a big thing. No, and what, I, well, what I've realized in the last probably five to six years that this has kind of changed for me is that m- most people, if you ask and they're able, will say yes, and it's not a big deal. I think that forming your own business was very brave. Oh, for sure. One of the top, one of the hardest things I, I probably that I've done. Um, hard for me to walk away from a career that I loved. Hard to start a new business. It's my, it's one of my, on my tattoo, tattoo that I got. Ankle. So there's three mountains, yeah. which are the hardest things I've had to overcome in my life. One is the infertility before I had my daughter. One's my divorce and one is starting my own business. <laughs> How'd you overcome infertility? Did you do like IVF? Yeah. I had, I had probably... That's so expensive. Yeah. I had probably five miscarriages, had looked into adoption, tried IVF. Yeah. I mean, eventually I had no... I could get pregnant. I just couldn't stay pregnant. <laughs> it just wasn't... And I thought at one point it was not going to be in the cards. Um, so yeah, I didn't have Sid till I was 35. Wow. Yeah. And I had done some IVF that didn't work and had some frozen that I tried after her and, you know. So why did you decide to leave local TV? A merging of a lot of different things. My daughter was getting to be the age where I felt it was going to be important to be around more and 
with the job that I had, uh, it was long hours and lots of responsibility. And even when you're home, you're getting text, uh, you know, from people dealing with stuff. Two, the business had really changed. When I went into it, those, that was the best way and the only way to really tell stories that I wanted to tell. And with social media and, and different platforms now, there's so many different ways to tell a story. So I didn't need to be the only thing. I was getting close to 50. And you know, that's one of those things where I was like, if I didn't make the move now, that's what I was gonna do for the rest of my life. Um, and that business is a lot of hold your breath, stress. And I was like, is that really what I wanna be doing when I'm, you know? 60? No, not really. Like, I'd like to do, like, have a different sort of a thing. So it was kind of like timing. And, and so probably those three things all at the same time is, is why I did it. And it turned out that uh, <laughs> happened to coincide with my divorce. So yes, I did need to be home for my daughter, not in the way I expected, <laughs> but I did need to be home more for her. There were other ways and to tell the stories. If I had stayed, I'd never have written for the Washington Post or Good Housekeeping or been in Chicken Soup for the Soul, which I had loved as a kid. Like that was like, which I realized like it's slightly cheesy and I don't, I, I can totally embrace it because I read that all the time as a kid. Um, but the, if I had stayed, I wouldn't have gotten to do that stuff. Kind of all no these- No mile marker 50. Right, and no mile marker 50. So all these things that I thought were the three reasons that I were doing it, it was, but kind of with a twist, which is kind of what I expect. Like, you know, what's that saying? You, you plan, God laughs. Okay, sure, that's why, you know, so, um, yeah. Yeah. If we get struck by lightning right now, and the only thing that survives is this little piece of audio. Oh my. What is your legacy? <sighs> what is my legacy? That's a hard question. I, I think I just want people to say she was a really good person. She was a really good mom and she was really good at what she did because I know that you're more than your job, but like I've always loved my job and what I do so much. If people said that about me, I would be totally good with that. You're a really good person. <laughs> You're a great mom <laughs> and you're really, really good at what you do. Thanks. And I think you know that. Thanks. I am just such a fan of Allison Andrews. She has helped me out personally, professionally, just enormously. And um, not just still on speaking terms, she is, she is my friend no matter what. I appreciate it. Thank you, Allison. Man Listening is a production of Unmediated LLC in cooperation with the Queen City Podcast Network and Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative and Rachel Clapp Miller are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. Please go to our Patreon page. You'll find us at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening, one word, no spaces. We hope you'll join us by becoming a member. A small investment can raise up the conversation. 
If you want exclusive member merch, like a t-shirt, we can arrange that too. A huge shout out and thank you to everyone who has supported Man Listening from the very beginning. I cannot thank you enough. Don't forget to support us at Patreon. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Click the subscribe button and next week you'll hear... When people are interacting on a daily basis together, it's a different relationship regardless of your economic or privileged or lack of privileged position because there's familiarity. That's next week on Man Listening. Thanks.